morning, everyone. Junior church, you are dismissed to walk. Dismissed. They're not listening. I don't know why I would expect it any different here than it is at my own house. Yeah. So our life, our world, our culture is full of different logos. There are logos and symbols everywhere around us. They're on billboards, they're on TV, the t-shirts have logos. But how well do you know logos? So we're going to have a little game here. Okay, we're going to have this side against this side. Okay, you understand? It's your left side and the right side. It's opposite for me. Okay, so first person to raise their hand gets to answer. If no one raises their hand, I'm picking someone. Okay? So here is the first logo. Who knows this logo? Whoa, right there. Yeah, you would. Acura, and the answer is... Acura, very good. Okay. Point for you guys. I'll tell you what the prize is later. I didn't plan one. So I'll tell you later. Ready? Who knows this logo? Oh, right there. DreamWorks. Very good. See, they're not all cars. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, DreamWorks. All right. This one, I hope. Uh, this is my generational right here. And the uh, logo is? Oh, he didn't even wait. And the answer is, of course, Hamburger Helper. Very good. Ready? This one. Somebody better know it. Oh, wow. They're just saying it. And the answer is Mustang. Very good. Um, in the slides, I wanted to have another logo, so just wait a moment. I was going to have the blackout version of our church logo. And then I thought, what if nobody knows it? And this is on YouTube, so we skipped that one. Let's not do that. How about this one might be hard for some of you. Who knows what this logo is? Oh, Mutual of Omaha. Very good. And that is the answer. Mutual of Omaha. They have since changed their logo to a lion head, um, but very good. Okay. See, do you know this logo? N64, that's my kid, yep, N64, Nintendo 64, okay, ladies, you guys have been quiet, who knows this one, <laughs> the ladies are like, I know that one, fancy Walmart, okay, and this one, Windows, okay, I was hoping it was more of a tie, but so far this side's winning. But we're going to just pretend it's a tie. This next picture has two logos on it, two logo characters. So you have to be able to identify each one. And here are these logos. Who can name them? <laughs> I can. Twix. Trix Rabbit is which one? The white one. And the quick rabbit. And the answer is, of course, you're right. Yes, so, very good. Nate knows food and cars. <laughs> Those are important things, yes. We are surrounded with logos. They're all over. Okay, what about 
in our faith systems. There are logos in them. Um, what does this symbol represent? Judaism, Jewish, it's the Star of David. Very good. What does this symbol represent? Muslims. Okay. And what is the most common religious symbol, at least in our part of the world? And that is right here, the cross. You see it in on churches, you see it in jewelry. What does the cross mean to each of us? The cross wasn't a very popular symbol. During the day of Jesus, the cross was a symbol of shame, of embarrassment. It was a symbol of warning and terror. If one of your family members or close friends died on the cross, you tried to avoid and distance yourself from it, not gravitate towards it. The Roman Empire used the cross as a meaning of very cruel execution. A pole would be sunk into the ground, and if you were going to die on the cross, you would be fastened to the crossbar and hoisted up to it and hung on on that pole. The cross was reserved for slaves, robbers, assassins, and rebels against the Roman rule. Roman citizens would not be executed on a cross because that's too shameful of a way to die in Romans' eyes. To the Jews, if you were on the, if you crucified, if you were on the cross and died, you were considered to be cursed by God. In their culture, that's what the cross meant. Many people get confused by the cross. They don't understand that if Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God, God in flesh, how could he allow the shame, this disfigurement, this cruelty, this terror, fall on him? Why would he allow it to take place? Now, one thing I want to make clear as we get into the message. Many people wear crosses on their, on their necklaces. They have them in their homes. We have one here on the church. If you take the cross and worship it as a symbol then it has become an abomination to the faith and to God. I thank God for the cross. I really do. But I praise God for the person that was on the cross. It is not the cross that makes Jesus special. It is Jesus that makes the cross special. And we need to understand that if you wear a cross as a necklace or something, that is, I'm not saying that's wrong. That is a perfect way to um, use it as as a reminder, to remind us of what Jesus has done for us. It should serve as a reminder for that. The cross, though, is not holy. Jesus is. We're in a, a detour um, destination Easter. We, we've kind of left the, the book of Acts and we're going through this study and looking into Easter. Last week we looked at the Last Supper and saw what that supper can reveal to us. And today we're going to look intently at the cross. And there's several lessons of the cross and we're not going to hit every single one of them. But I know God wants us to know certain things of the cross. That's why it's such a pervasive symbol. That's why it is encapsulates our imagination and our hearts and our emotions. It is a very strong symbol, so we want to look at that. We're going to be in Luke chapter 23. 
And so if, if you can open up your Bibles, you can use the Bible app, the U version. you can pull that open. Uh, but listen to these words that also be on the screen. In Luke 23, as they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him and put a cross, put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women. But Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and your children. For the days are coming when they will say, Fortunate indeed are the women who are childless, the wombs who have not borne a child, and the breasts that have never nursed. People will beg the mountains, fall on us. But plead with the hills, bury us. For if these things are done when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him, meaning Jesus. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they, they know not, they don't know what they are doing, and the soldiers gambled. First closed by throwing dice. This is a horrific scene. Jesus is so weak from the beatings and the turmoil and the lack of sleep. I, I'm uh, Thursday night. We got a bunch of rain, and um, our sump pump started making weird noises and not working right. So I was up till four thirty, making sure we didn't have a flooded basement. And so I was kind of tired the next day. Okay, kind of tired. And I went to a, a retreat for um, the camp board of directors. And I was up till 2.30 playing games, messing around. And so yesterday, I come home and I'm, I can't form complete sentences. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what I ate for supper last night. I know I ate, but I can't remember what it was. Without proper sleep, we can't really function. Imagine Jesus being led to different uh, rulings where they're judging him and trying to um, accuse him of things. And he's being led all night long. He didn't get to sleep. And then an add on top of that, beatings. And so he is physically exhausted, mentally exhausted, physically tortured, mentally, emotionally, spiritually tortured. He's so weak, he stumbles, and he drops the crossbeam. And the soldiers, they grab this bystander and force him to carry the cross. The, the, the people are crying. Jesus, in his weakened state, stands up and addresses the crowd. Don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves, because if this is going to happen when I'm with you, how bad can it be when I'm not? He stood there and addressed their hearts. He addressed their concerns. Don't cry for me, but cry for yourself because bad times are coming. Times when you will wish you were dead. Then they get to the hill nicknamed the skull. And Jesus is hung on the cross with criminals on either side of him. The soldiers, the ones that had beaten him, get to now nail him to the cross. They nailed, and you've got to remember, these, these um, criminals on either side, they were treated a little nicer. They were just as bad, tr badly treated. 
A lot of times we see in the photos, or the pictures, not photos, because they didn't have cameras. In the pictures, Jesus has nails in his hands, but what did the criminals have? Ropes. That's not what happened. They were all nailed to the cross. They deserved their punishment. They were rightly there. But what crime did Jesus commit? He was arrested illegally. He had an unfair trial. He was actually pronounced innocent by Pilate. And yet, he is still being crucified. The criminals died for their sins, for their crimes. Why did Jesus die? Romans tells us, Romans 3.23, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious Standard In Hebrews 9.22, in fact, according to the law of Moses, the Old Testament back then, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And a few verses later in verse 28, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many. And that word many there means many, many, many people. So why did Jesus, the criminals died for their own crimes and sins. Why did Jesus die? Because of my sins. Because your sins. And what the cross teaches us is that Jesus' death was a necessary death. It was absolutely necessary. We can get emotional when we think about the cross and, and the punishment that Jesus endured it, and we rightly should. But we must understand that without the cross... Without Jesus going to the cross for my sins and your sins, without that event, I would be destined to hell. And so would you. Jesus' death was necessary because we are all unrighteous. We need grace and mercy from the Almighty God because we have sinned. Because of God's perfection, His righteousness, His grace, He took the righteousness and perfectness of Jesus, and he placed it on me. He placed it on you. It, it doesn't come automatic. It must be a conscious decision to follow Christ. There must be a time in your life where you realize the state of your sinful life, your choices. We, we just heard about the path that, Austin, we sometimes choose paths and then they don't work. When we choose to become our own leaders, our own gods, we get to choose our ways. We really find out how insignificant we are and how wrong so often we can be when we truly look at ourselves and look at what we've chosen I mean let's be honest our souls are wicked we are full of deceit we choose bad oh I'm a good person compared to what I really that's when we say that we're trying to compare ourselves to Hitler. I'm a good person compared to him. Well, compare yourself to God and say how good you are. That's what the cross means. So we have to choose it. There's got to be a time in our life where we choose to submit to Jesus as Lord, are baptized, receive forgiveness of our sins and the salvation of our soul. It's a necessary death because I can never do good enough on my own to earn God's favor. Look what it says in Romans 3.10. The scriptures say, No one is righteous, not even one. 
Anybody who says, well, I'm a good person, Scripture says not. No one is truly wise. I'm pretty smart. No, no, you're not. No one is seeking God. I like to think I'm seeking God. But it's really the Holy Spirit who is prompting me and moving me to seek God. Because on my own, I choose dumb things. All the ladies in here know their husbands choose dumb things. It's what we do. The cross was necessary because it was the only way you and I could ever be right with God. We tend to think that when the crowd was yelling, crucify him, crucify him, that we would have defended Jesus. Uh, a lot of it, oh, if I was there, I would not have said that. I would have been the one saying, no, he's my savior. I would have defended Jesus. Realistically, we would have joined the crowd. But let me say something that just might be a little shocking. More than that, we should be thankful. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross. Hey, realistically, I should be saying, please, Jesus, die on the cross. If I was there, please, Jesus, be crucified. Crucify him so I can finally be able to go to heaven. That's really what we should be. Not defending him, but praising him and actually encouraging, yes, Jesus, you do what I can't. So I can be in you. Jesus' death was necessary. Let's go on, verse 35. The crowd watched. The leaders scoffed. Oh, he saved others. They said, let him save himself if he really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him, too, by offering a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fashioned above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah? Are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. This whole scene right here, these words are all in mockery. They are all belittling Jesus. The sign that was hanging over him that said, this is the king of the Jews, was not about bringing honor to God. This was not about saying, this really is Jesus, a declaration. This is really a joke, is what the, Jew, or the Romans are saying. This is your king, this is what we'll do to him, because we are your rulers. That's why the Romans did that. It's a warning to others, if you're going to claim ownership, ruling class in this country, which we own, that's your fate. That's why the sign was put up there. It reminds us, all of this, the mocking from even the guy, really think about the guys on the cross next to him. He had to mock, and, and I didn't want to get into it too much, So, but the, to enable to breathe is hard enough on the cross. Because you're dangling and your arms are straight up, and you have to push on the nails in your hands or your feet just to get breath. And have you ever tried talking without breathing? You can't. Okay? So in order to breathe, he has to push up on the nails. He doesn't just push up on the nails to breathe. He pushes up to mock the one dying next to him. He gets in his own pain just to say, you're the king of, you're the chosen one, the Messiah. And then he has to push up and save us. Think of all the mockery that is happening there. And it leads us to... The cross teaches us that some will refuse Jesus. 
that, that's really the next thing. The cross teaches us that some will refuse Jesus. It, it, Jonathan, there you go. It seems crazy to me that to most of us, but there are people who refuse Jesus. They deny their need for salvation. They keep trying to show, I am a good person. They keep buying into that lie. The Bible tells us this in 1 Corinthians 1. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. There are some people here today, even here, who think that the whole idea of the crucifixion and Jesus being the Son of God and dying on it is ridiculous. There's people who are going to watch this online. There are going to be people all over the world who are thinking the same thing. I don't need some stranger on the cross to die for me. I'm a good person. I've never hurt anybody like that. I've never murdered. And while that may be true to a point, you still need Jesus. You still need the cross because without it, you will perish. You may not have broken many of man's laws, but how many of us are perfect? Perfect. You've never once lied. Never once taken something that didn't belong to you. Last week, my mom was here, and uh, we started talking about things that we tried to get away with, you know, and I said that. She goes, so what things did you try to get away with? I knew it was going to come after the sermon. And I remember the first time I tried to get away with something. I remember the first time, and we talked about it. We were in the grocery store, and they have those big, clear canisters of candy. And you lift up the lid and get the scoop. And I lifted up the lid and just took two and put them in my pocket. And then, like a really smart boy trying to be sneaky, as soon as we got in the car, before the radio was even on, what do you have? Nothing? Wow, did I get beat. And then, marched back in there and had to pay for it. Telling the guy I stole this candy. And then I had to pay for it. And then I got another beating at home for embarrassing her. We may think we're perfect. We may think we're really good. But if we've done one sin, one thing, we've proven that we're evil. We have chosen wrong. Just because you may not have broken many of uh, man's laws, Romans 3.23 says, all of us have broken God's laws. If you've ever told a lie before, even as a child, and according to God's word, you are a liar. If you've ever taken something that wasn't yours, you didn't have permission, you are a thief. If you have ever looked at someone lustfully, then according to God's laws, you are an adulterer. If you ever wish to have something that wasn't yours, wishing that that person, you could have it. Um, I forgot the word. What's that word? Coveter. There we go. Um, if you've ever wanted to get out of a punishment, then you're a weasel. If you've ever been so angry at someone that you thought you just want to kill them, biblically, you're a murderer. 
And the ones, except for the weasel one, that's just six of the Ten Commands. Okay, so if I were going to ask, out of those six, if you have kept just those six perfectly, who here is able to stand up? And I don't want to be accused of saying the other. So if none of us are perfect enough, we need Jesus. We need that necessary death, and realistically, we've all refused Jesus at some point then. The point is this. Many people think they are good enough to get on their own, that they don't need salvation that Jesus gave on the cross. But the reality is, we are sinners. We've all chosen wrong. You either receive salvation that Jesus provides by paying the debt of our sin on that cross, or God will handle, hand you the bill for your own sins. Either you take the paid in full check that Jesus paid on the cross, or you choose to pay for it on your way to hell. Those are the two options. And the cross teaches us that even that knowledge will cause some people to say, I I don't want it. The guy on the cross mocking Jesus right next to him. So some will refuse. But look what it says in verse 40. The other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. And remember, he has to again push on that nail to stretch his chest so he can get a breath, just to breathe and to speak. So he's doing this in defense. This man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. One of the most beautiful scenes of crucifixion just happens here. It's where this lost thief is receiving salvation from his Savior right there on the cross. The cross teaches us that all are redeemable. You know, my favorite part about this is it wasn't his mother Mary on the ground. Mom, you're going to be with me in paradise. It wasn't the priests who were trying to live out the law. It was the evil thief. All can come to Jesus and be redeemed. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to get all these things lined up before you come to God. The thief, in the midst of paying for his sins, had his debt of eternity changed. To the Jew, this man on the cross was unredeemable. He deserved this. He was cursed by God, and yet God himself blessed him. Today, you will be with me in paradise. To Jesus, this man was the perfect candidate for salvation. Because he had come to the end of himself and realized, I am a sinful man, and this one here is worthy. This one here is holy. He only asked that Jesus could remember me. And Jesus gave him so much more. Notice he didn't say, this man's innocent, so Jesus, please save me. He didn't ask for that. He didn't say, can you just knock the pain receptors out of my body so I can just finish this without the pain? It seems like he realized with all he'd done in his life, he was getting 
what he deserved. He just wanted to know, is there a chance to be remembered in heaven? This man wasn't able to change his actions. He wasn't able to go and say, well, I'm going to quit stealing and, and killing now. He was dying on the cross. I've heard some people say, well, see, he wasn't baptized, so therefore, no, he wasn't baptized. But what he did get was a true, genuine salvation because Jesus saw his heart, his mind. And I, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing it, sinning or not. There's not one person still alive that Jesus cannot save. I don't care how far you have run your life into sin. I don't care how many times you have purposely chosen to sin. I don't care how evil even the world considers you. There is not one person alive that Jesus cannot save. There's not one person alive. But once you die, it's too late. Once you die, it's too late to come to Christ. We don't get a second chance after this earthly life. But if you come to Jesus for the forgiveness before you die, there is nothing that Jesus won't wipe free. At the board retreat, um, one of the guys stood up and we were talking about timeline stuff in the camp and all that, and he really showed his testimony. He talked about how he ran from God. He was living a life that was very contrary to what he knew he should be. He was bars, drinking, and a lot of things that went with that. And in the midst of him telling that, I saw tears form in his eyes because he knew better. We all knew he knew better, and he was still choosing it. And it was in Walmart when he was confronted with it. God came up, you're the guy from the bar. And he's like, what am I being known for? And right there in front of us, he was like, I turned and I said, God, thank you for forgiving me. I'm done. I'm done doing it this way. I'm done trying to live according to my plan, my track. Put me back on yours. And now he's in ministry. He's leading people to Christ. He's... So talented, and God is blessing so many people around him. It is amazing. The cross teaches us that we are redeemable. You are redeemable. Here's the thing. I've seen so many ladies talking about on Facebook, and they show pictures of, of sunsets and trees and mountains, and they're like, look how beautiful God's creation is. And it's true. And then they look at themselves in the mirror and they go, Ugh. No. See, the cross, it's not just that you're redeemable. He says you are worthy. You are so worthy. He wants you. And so that the sky, that beautiful sunset with the mountains or the ocean, looks like gross mold compared to how he sees you. You are redeemable. Let's move on. Verse 44. By this time it was about noon and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. 
The light from the sun was gone. Notice it repeated. It was noon. Should be bright. And then uh, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock, 3 hours. The, in case you didn't realize it, the light from the sun was gone. And then suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. Darkness covered the area, it said. This alone should cause people to, to wonder and panic. Secular writers, historians of that time period, even write about this peculiar darkness that hit the land. And just in case somebody says, well, it's probably just a solar eclipse. No, they knew about that stuff then. And it was not a solar eclipse. And if you go back into the time period of these secular writers, not the Christian writers, they even say it was odd. They don't understand how, why there was darkness. And then here is my favorite part. This is my favorite. It just it thrilled me this week as I really wrapped into this. During the darkness is when something happens. During the darkness, this curtain was ripped in half inside the temple. It was torn from top to bottom, and no person could have done this. And this is why I want to tell you, the temple was originally 30 cubits high, but Herod had increased it by 40 cubits. There's no certain measurement of exactly what a um, cubit is, but it is the 40 cubits means right now it would have been about 60-odd feet. Okay, I know how expensive curtains are for a five-foot window. You know, imagine a 60-foot tall curtain. An early Jewish tradition says this veil was around four inches thick. These are blackout curtains. That's, that's really what they are. This curtain was there to block the most holy part where they said God himself would reside. And it was a barrier so that his awesome purity couldn't just kill somebody because of how tainted and evil we are. And in this holy area, a high priest could only enter in once, and they had a rope and a bell wrapped around him in case he was in there or he had a sin and he died. They could pull him out because nobody else could go in there. This was the perfect, the most perfect place on earth since the garden. Exodus teaches us that this veil was fashioned from blue, purple, and scarlet materials, fine-twisted into a thick curtain. The size and the thickness of this veil make it the events of this death more enormous. For those who are a little older, remember how thick the yellow pages are? And you've seen those really tough guys rip it, and they got, they're straining, and they finally rip it. Imagine trying to rip this fabric that actually moves, and it rips it 60 feet. But more than just the feet of ripping this, because even Jewish people were like, they didn't understand why this ripped. This was something that shook them. The reason and the timing are perfect. When Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he said these words, and then he died. At that moment, the curtain was ripped from top to bottom. person couldn't have done this, which tells us this. The cross teaches us we have full and open access to God. 
Now here's the, the significance of the veil tearing into signifies to us who have come to faith in Jesus that there is nothing keeping me from Jesus. It was in this darkness, in the middle of the darkness where sin is now fully upon Jesus. So much sin from all the people of all the ages that it blocks out the sun. And in that moment, God rips the curtain and says, now you can come to me. Jesus said, it's finished, that it can come to you. And he died so that we can go into the most holy place, into the heart of God. God no longer had a barrier. We no longer have to wait for somebody to go in there and hope my sins are taken care of. We don't need a mediator anymore because Jesus finished it and he ripped the curtain. Do you understand the significance? In the midst of that darkness, he provided a way. The cross teaches us that we have full and open access to God. And you know what this shows again? You don't have to figure it out first. You don't have to line up your life right. I need to take care of these sins first. I need to do this first. In the midst of your sins, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the curtains ripped away. And I can come into the heart of God. And look what this does. Verse 47. When the Roman officer seeing the execution saw all that had happened, meaning all the weeping, he saw all that. He saw the soldier or the criminals exchange. He saw Jesus. He saw the darkness. He worshiped God, said, Surely this man was innocent. When all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw all that had happened, they went home in sorrow. Deep sorrow. Jesus' friends, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. Imagine this scene. I really try to imagine this. This soldier who's watching this scene, probably one of them who helped beat Jesus. More likely one of them who helped nail him to the cross. He's standing there to make sure this guy dies and the other criminals. He's there to make sure all the people around know that the Romans are in charge. And this hardened person, this one who's become calloused to the problems of this world, to the pain and torment. This person who has killed others himself in the name of Rome stands at the foot of the cross. And he worships God, saying, this man was innocent. He regrets his things. When you read the original Greek, um, the proper translation is something like this. Surely this is the righteous one. It's not that he's just innocent. This soldier actually makes a proclamation. Surely this one who I am standing at the foot of the cross of is righteous. He is the holy one. He is the Son of God. The soldier makes a profession of faith in Jesus Christ at the actual foot of the cross. And in this crucifixion scene, we see two individuals give their life to Jesus Christ. We have the criminal and now even the soldier, neither which are Jews. He went from torturing Jesus to professing he's the righteous one. The cross teaches us. There is still room 
for more. It doesn't matter your background. It just matters if you come to the foot of the cross. And not look at the cross, but you look at the one who was on it for you. The soldier went from enemy to family. The cross, the sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross is the defining moment. Before we accepted Christ as our Savior, before you accepted Christ, really hear me, you were an enemy of God. You are an enemy of God until you accept Jesus as Lord. And when you are living in your darkness of your sin, of, of your own clouded thinking that you can control your destiny, you are embracing darkness, whether you want to admit it or not. And I know people who say, I'm not a bad person. But compared to God, we are evil. We are scum. Compared to God and his holiness, we are corrupt. Scripture says in Romans 5, 8, but God who showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Not after you fixed it, not after you cleaned up your life, not after you got sober, not after you fixed the relationships and mended some bridges. In the midst of your darkness, the cross teaches us this. This verse, that verse that was just up there, is about the cross. It's about that curtain being ripped in two. God did not tear, tear the curtain open during the light. He didn't do it in the middle of the day. He didn't do it then when everybody thinks they're doing If you've ever been to Vegas, and you haven't, if you haven't been to Vegas, I'm not suggesting going. Okay. But in the daytime, Vegas looks dirty and drab and gross. It's at nighttime when all this pretty lights come out, and it hides the rest of that stuff. And you don't want to see that at Well, that's kind of cool looking. I've been there. I've seen it. But if you look into the darkness when you're in there, you start seeing things happening. You're like, this is not safe. In the midst of our darkness, he opened the door so we can leave that and enter into him. That's what the cross is saying. Come to me right now. God opened the temple. God opened it up for all people from the one who helped torture him. The one who helped promote and, and crucify him. To the one who had nothing to do with him but was just a criminal. He accepted all of them. And as we're getting closer, next week's Easter. How many people today are still going to look up at the cross? I don't think I need it. And that is their choice. That's your choice. But here's the part that really hurts me. How many of those people are we related to or we talk to? We don't say a word. We let them go on. I tell you right now, if, if I know one of my kids is heading for destruction, I'm doing anything I can to stop it. Even if it's called rude, I'm getting in their way. As long as I have breath in me, they will not be able to go in the way of destruction and claim ignorance. They can't. That's how I treat my family. 
once I became a Christian, you're all my family. So guess what I get to say to you? And guess what you get to say to me? And guess what we should be saying to all those around us? Don't go through it. Don't try to be perfect. Don't try to line it all up. Don't, as even Austin said in the meditation, don't try to figure out your own path of life. Just come and trust God. And here's the proof of it. Let's be reminded of what the cross is. Here's the best part about the cross. It's empty. He didn't stay there. He left that as a reminder that I don't have to go there. That I don't have to face an eternity of my sins. I don't have to pay the penalty. Neither do you. If you've never chosen that, I don't just tell you right now, the elders and I, we want to talk to you about it right now. We want to talk about that and find a way to help that. But it's your choice. We're going to come together again and we're going to stand and worship. If you've never made that decision or if you want to talk more about that, we'll meet you in the back and really go to God and see what Scripture says. If you've already chosen that, why don't we take this time, just praise Him. Let's sing a song and thank Him that He did all that on the cross, that He said, you are worthy for my death so we can go to heaven. Will you proclaim what you believe as we stand now and we worship our God?